0: Welcome to Tisky Sour. Tonight we're talking about inflation, which is at the highest level it has been in 40 years. I'll speak to James at Meadway about why workers should, contra what you might be hearing from leading politicians, why they should ask for a pay rise. We'll also be talking about the Tory MP arrested on suspicion of rape, Ed Miliband very successfully laying into Rishi Sunak and the Daily Mail's pretty obsessive campaign Against people working from home. This evening, I'm delighted to be joined by Moya Lovian McLean. Tisky viewers will have seen Moya before as a guest host, but this is the first time you've been on the show as a Navarra Media staff member. Moya is our newest contributing editor. How have you found joining the team, Moya?
1: Well, you know that I love to be paid a full-time salary, so it's fantastic. No, I'm really pleased to be here and also that have a four-day working week.
0: It's true. Navarra Media, four-day working week. We practice what we preach, we're in favour of a four-day week, and so we run one. With household budgets already at breaking point, average price increases have reached a 40-year high. Inflation now stands at 9%, a level last seen in 1982. It's seven points above the Bank of England's target. Yet even that high figure fails to account for the full impact price rises are having on Britain's poorest. As the IFS show, prices for the poorest households have gone up by a massive 10.9% that compares to only 7.9% inflation for the richest households. The difference is because poor people spend more of their incomes on essential goods such as energy, food and rent. These are the goods for which the prices have increased the fastest. Yet, despite all this, Boris Johnson still thinks he has a good economic story to tell.
2: And I'm proud to say, Mr Speaker, that this week it was revealed that unemployment has come down to the lowest level since 1974, when I was 10 years old, Mr Speaker. I don't know how old he was, but I was 10 years old.
0: That low unemployment and high inflation go together is a tenet of neoliberal economics. The idea is that when jobless rates are low, businesses have to compete for workers. That means workers can demand higher wages. And when workers demand higher wages, so the story goes, prices go even higher. It's what's known as a wage price spiral, and the governor of the Bank of England seems to think that it is a real risk. Andrew Bailey this week told MPs that Britain should think and reflect before asking for a pay rise, which, in effect, is demanding we accept a real terms pay cut. But, and we should be very clear, this idea is bogus. According to Andrew Bailey himself, 80% of this year's inflation is driven by an increase in global energy prices and supply shocks caused by COVID. It has nothing to do with wages. Yet, despite this fact, even Labour appear reluctant to resist the call for people to accept a cut to their pay. Speaking to Radio 4's Justin Webb, this was Shadow Secretary for Work and Pensions, Jonathan Ashworth. Where do you stand on the Bank of
1: England
3: governor's call for wage restraint? Well, uh, what is happening here is two things coming, two economic problems coming into focus. The first is that we've run an economy of low growth for 12 years, which means our economy is increasingly characterised by low pay uh, and temporary work, which in the end costs the Treasury more anyway. But then, of course, you've got these international factors pushing up energy bills, pushing up Food prices. I think you know a bag of pasta at Tesco's has gone from something like one twenty to one forty. Butter's gone up from one forty eight mm. to one seventy five. So should you, you, people you be asking picture. for more money? Well, or I not? think what that, what what I think we need is action to protect people with the cost of living. So energy bills. No, but, but hang also, on, on
4: wages. Would... Sorry to you on wages, which is what the governor was talking about. The governor said, particularly people who are better off, said don't ask for more money. That was the thrust of what he was saying. Was he right or wrong to but make people that? People are
3: appeal, going to think? ask for a fair. Uh, wage rise if the government doesn't do something. To right, so it's their reasonable for but people let to me ask give you for a more proposal. Money. Let me give you a proposal that the government could do. They have said that next year's benefit increase will capture inflation rates. In other words, they're saying next year the pension and the benefits will go up. Mm. Uh, well, this year they're cutting benefits and pensions by huge amounts in real terms. Yeah, but I was asking about wages, and I'm just just not completely clear about whether you support the government of the Bank of England or not when he says people shouldn't be asking for more money. I'm giving you a proposal to help people... cope with the cost of living crisis now, which is to bring forward some of next year's benefit increase into this year. The government have budgeted for that. Simon Clark, the chief secretary, said that is what they are going to do. So the money is in their plans. But by waiting a year, they are pushing 500,000 children into absolute poverty.
0: That cannot be right. It's important to note how significant what you just heard there was. The question put to Labour's minister for workers, for work and pensions, was should people ask for wage rises in line with inflation? In other words, should workers resist a pay cut? And Jonathan Ashworth couldn't answer that question. He seems to not think it's obvious that a Labour shadow minister should be against. And we have to be clear here, real terms pay cuts. This isn't about people having restraint when it comes to pay rises. We're talking about people resisting pay cuts. Earlier today, I spoke to economist and Navarra Media columnist James Meadway. I started by asking why, Despite the evidence, politicians still want to respond to inflation by encouraging pay restraint.
4: It's pretty weird to see it happen because there's something very uh, – there's, there's a really obvious answer to the, to the question if you're ever asked, which is that prices are going up an awful lot. People's wages aren't. Should they be asking for more money? And the answer is always yes. And it's particularly always yes if you're a Labour politician. You're, the clue is in the name here, right? It's the party of workers. You should be able to say this. Same goes, by the way, for benefits and, and pensions and all the rest of it. And the reason you can say there's a complete confidence is that if you saw what the Office for National Statistics, statistics said today about where this inflation is coming from they're saying three quarters of what's just happened inflation going up on their main measure to nine percent this is driven by the the increase in in energy prices which was an off-gen decision back in april to, to make this happen it's got nothing to do with how much you're paying people that isn't the problem here the problem here is that we're not paying people enough to keep up with inflation actually overtake inflation the problem here is that prices are too high not that wages are too high it's completely the wrong way around. But what it means if you start saying wage restraint when prices are going up if you're not getting paid enough to keep up with those prices, the prices have still gone up the money's still going somewhere somebody else is getting that money and that means profits are being protected. that means profits are going up and profits right now in money terms are at record levels. I mean BP and Shell are the two notorious examples of this, but right across the board, you can see particularly large companies are making money out of this and it's obvious if your money you're being paid isn't getting much better or not getting better at all, but you're having to pay more for stuff, somebody else is getting that money. So you say wage restraint, you're saying no restraint on profits. You're saying profits can carry on rising, but workers are going to have to carry the cost of that.
0: To put forward what I understand as the opposing argument, what people seem to be saying is that while this round of inflation might be caused by external shocks, so for example, the war in Ukraine, or supply chain issues caused by covid if they argue we were to give workers wage rises in line with inflation, that could in turn cause increased inflation, which could in turn cause people to demand higher wages, what's called a wage price spiral. What do you make of that argument?
4: Three things are, are wrong with it. One, one is that it just completely misunderstands the kind of labour market we now have. If most people going off to work in Britain, and and literally most people going off to work in Britain will be working in a workplace where there is no trade union, there is no collective bargaining agreement. It's basically them who signs a contract with the employer, and that's it. And you have next to no bargaining power at work. Maybe you can walk out of your job. I mean, a lot of people have done that in in the last year or so, the Great Resignation. It's sort of slight elemental assertion of workers' power, but it's there. But nonetheless, you don't actually have the collective bargaining agreement, you don't have the trade union, you don't have this institution which can say, oh, we think inflation is going to go up. We're going to use our collective power to ask for more wages. And that's going to turn into more costs for our employer. Our employer is going to put up prices. And then that's going to turn into more inflation. And so we're going to come back and ask for more wages. It's just not going to happen. There are no institutions there. Wages in Britain for the last decade are basically fallen or been flat for most people in real terms, taking account of even the pretty low inflation we have. Now we have really quite high inflation. 40-year high is high. Wages are going absolutely nowhere. So the institutions to make that so-called wage-price spiral happen are not there anymore. We broke. I say we. Margaret Thatcher's successive governments broke trade unions when they sought to defend people from rising inflation in the 1970s, using the excuse of a wage-price spiral. By the way, amongst other reasons, that's what they did. So that is that part of it uh, isn't going to isn't going to happen at all. The second bit of it, I think, is that. The inflation we're having now, is the idea that, oh, it's transitional, it's temporary, it's just this after effect of COVID. That's what we're seeing. Now, obviously, part of that, what we're getting now is the severe disruption, this kind of backwash from all that disruption over 2020 into 2021 of lockdowns. But as I said, some of that is actually continuing. So supply chains in China, and China is the world's largest manufacturer, are severely disrupted by lockdowns in Shenzhen and Shanghai and other places. That's still ongoing. But you then throw in all the other stuff that's happening to how the world economy functions. And it's happening at an increasing pace, which is this kind of environmental breakdown. So you do get the droughts, the rainfall, the excess rainfall, the heat waves, the forest fires, the huge disruptions to how we produce food, uh, how we produce some other raw materials, and commodities, how we produce semiconductors affected by drought in Taiwan. All of that is ongoing. That's all still a shock. That's all still going to push up prices. So that's not going away. So if you're there saying oh, it was a wage price spiral, I'm sorry. You, you can try and suppress wages all you want. All of these environmental things are going to still be there, and they're still going to be hitting people. So it's useless to say, oh, well, we've got to restrain wages. Maybe we we'll can calm down it. Not absolutely useless on it. The third part is that, look, profits are high, not uniformly. If you're running a small business right now, probably not looking too good for you. But if you're in a big business, you're doing well. And you're doing particularly well if you are one of the really extractive industries, oil, gas, most obviously, you are making a fortune. So profits are high. And if you want to do something about inflation, you should dig into those profits and turn it into higher wages for people. That means either bringing prices down or pushing wages up or doing a bit of both. That's what you should be doing to try and uh, manage this situation.
0: Let's talk about bringing prices down and price controls. They're, they're, they're being talked about again. That was something that you know certain economists have said had been consigned to, to the dustbin of history. I've always been very much in favor of rent controls for self-interested reasons. I also happen to think it would be an excellent policy. People are now talking about you know, a more aggressive price cap when it comes to energy or at least price controls on, on the producers instead of just those, those retailers. How big a role should price controls play? And how many parts of the Economy could they play that role in? How many prices should the government be controlling if they were to consider that?
4: The answer is probably not that many. And the, the reason you say not that many is just that, look, you're, you're placing a very high demand on the government to try and judge a whole load of things correctly. And, and honestly, with this government, in like fact, with most governments, it's asking a lot to expect a government to be able to judge a whole load of interrelated different parts of the economy correctly. We don't have the institutions set up to do that. But what we do have and what we can see in the kind of inflation that's really hurting people right now, that's where they will see and experience these price rises, are a few key, basically essential goods uh, and services, of which in Britain, probably the most obvious, are natural gas, so the price of domestic energy, price needed particularly to keep your house warm during the autumn and winter months. And then also, as you, exactly as you said, the price of housing, so it's rent controls and the price of rent in particular. Now, these are things that are essential. You can't avoid paying for them. The price of gas is going to go up and up, or rather the price of your domestic energy is going to go up and up over the course of this year. We kind of, is what all forecasts say, this is what we anticipate to happen. You, by the time it gets to winter, are probably not going to have much room to actually just go, do you know what, no heating this winter, that's it. I mean, you can put on an extra jumper or whatever the usual sort of Tory nonsense is, but basically you're still going to have to pay for that. You'll cut back in everything else. That, by the way, is why we're likely to hit a recession over the next few months uh, as well, because people will be cutting back and spending elsewhere. But you're going to have to carry on paying that. And you don't have much choice. And that is why it's crying out for a price control or something similar, because because you don't have much choice, somebody down the line, literally, actually, selling you this gas is making a fortune. Shell, BP, these other big companies, they're making unbelievable profits. One way to shift that balance back again is to say, look, we're going to cap the amount that this particular price can go up by. Countries right across Europe do it. People know about France, Norway, Portugal. They all have. Norway seems to have a good scheme for, for you know, mass, uh, sort of progressivity built into it. If, if you're particularly rich, if you're spending huge amounts on, on heating, this sort of thing, you get less control than if you're just, you know, spending a sort of average amount on it. There are different ways to do this. There are better ways to do it than the system we have right now, which is this fairly crude six-month or now slightly more frequent uh, sort of announcement by Ofgem and how much everybody's bill is going to go up by. and. If the government wanted to control that more tightly, because Ofgem is a government agency, this is a political decision, that political decision right now is to say, we will protect the privatised gas supply markets. Ofgem almost literally says this uh, when it tells people what it's doing. We will prioritise protecting that. Not so much households. Well, you do it the other way around. You say, prioritize households and to hell with the privatized market. If that means a few gas suppliers go bankrupt. Fine. It happened last year. The government nationalized one, the bulb energy. You can just do this if you're the government and you should just do this. So I think the argument is to say, look, if there's a few key things that are really squeezing people, that is crying out for some sort of control. There's no reason not to do this. If you're concerned about people's well-being and livelihoods, if you don't care about that, to hell with it. Do whatever you want. Let the free market rip. Let off Jim, set whatever ludicrous cap it likes. I mean that's kind of the Tory attitude right now. But if you actually care about people's well being, you make that cap, you put it tightly, and you hold prices down for a whole bunch
0: of people. That was James Meadway talking about the necessity of tackling excess profits to get a handle on inflation. Unfortunately, since we spoke, government policy appears to be moving even further in the complete opposite direction. This evening, Rishi Sunak is delivering a speech to the annual dinner of the Confederation of British Industry. And according to The Telegraph, his big pledge will be this, a cut to business taxes. You couldn't make it up. We're living through the biggest drop in living standards since the 1950s. And the Chancellor has ignored the needs of the poor, all while offering tax cuts to dinners attended by bankers in the City of London. And on the topic of rising poverty, Andy Cook is the new Chief Inspector of Constabulary. That's the independent police watchdog in England and Wales. And he's urged police officers to adopt a light touch when dealing with people forced to steal in order to eat. He said, I think whenever you see an increase in the cost of living or whenever you see more people dropping into poverty, I think you'll invariably see a rise in crime. And that's going to be a challenge for policing to deal with. He goes on to say, it's one of the great things about being a police officer. You're allowed to make your own decisions in relation to all of these issues. It's not a new thing. There's always individual cases where you can use your discretion that doesn't necessarily result in a prosecution, but is dealt with in the best way possible. And the shoplifting one's a good example, isn't it? Moi, I want to get your comments in particular on that comment from this the, the new police inspector. I mean, on one level, it's remarkable that you've got police officers saying, yeah, the cost of living crisis is so severe that we are going to see more poor people stealing basic necessities like food. At the same time, normally all our stories on, on the police, on Novaro on Media, when they've you know been incredibly abusive, he's sort of speaking in a language I don't mind. What do you make of that?
1: Well, it's interesting because first of all, it shows how ingrained policing is with sort of every single issue in our country. They've become the kind of go-to social institution that everything's fed through. So you know, you're talking about cost of living crisis and shoplifting. Well, eventually it comes back to the police and whether they should arrest people who are having to steal basic necessities. But also what's interesting about Andy Cook is he says this, but in the same interview, I think he also said that the charging rate that police are making should treble from 6% to 20%. So while, you know, he's talking this sort of lenient light touch approach, the reality of the situation is there is no lenient light touch approach when it comes to modern policing, because of the way modern policing is enacted, because of it who affects. And he has pledged, again, to make things far more efficient. His job is to increase the effectiveness of policing. And the problem is that policing in the contemporary period, particularly, we know that it is something brutal. It often disproportionately affects the most marginalised people. You know, you've got this part of the Tory agenda to fill up the thousands of prison places that they have waiting and ready in these new mega prisons they're building. And I've heard that Pretty Patel is absolutely delighted with Andy Cook. So, you know, he's giving this interview about leniency and discretion. But when it comes down to it, if you're putting in front of officers that the charging rate should be much higher, what's actually going to happen on the ground? Are people going to be adopting a light touch, or are they going to be arresting people for minor offences? We can't forget, for example, that the majority of women in prison are serving short-term sentences, often for very minor offences. So Andy Cook talks a compassionate game, but I don't think it matches the reality of the profession he's in.
0: Very good point about targets, because obviously if you've given them this 20% charge rate, then the inclination is going to be to charge people who are the easiest to charge. So the people who you can most easily find sort of bulletproof evidence for are not necessarily the most serious criminals. So there could be like an incentive structure that, as you say, goes completely against the discretionary idea he was sort of promoting. Before we move on to the rest of the show, if you didn't catch our show on Monday, we have just launched a fundraiser. Here's what it's all about.
1: Mainstream media are fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issues facing society. Escalating living costs are plunging us into the greatest crisis in living memory. Wages are stagnant, workers' rights are being stripped, and the climate crisis barely makes the political agenda billionaire funders and advertising partnerships define what corporate media outlets do and don't cover. Their survival depends on pandering to the interests of their super rich funders. But
2: thanks to our supporters, Navarro Media is free to analyze what it takes to build a society that works for us all. We're free for all to access, free from ad partnerships, free from paywalls, and free from the influence of the super rich.
1: Over 100,000 of you visited NavarraMedia.com to watch, read and listen to our journalism in the past month.
0: Over 200,000 of you have subscribed to Navarra Media on YouTube and we got over two and a half million views last month alone. Just 6,000 regular supporters have made this possible. Imagine what we could do with 10,000 of you backing us.
1: Defy the mainstream and support independent media with integrity. Join our regular supporters and help us build our supporter base to 10,000 strong. Go to NavarraMedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from just one pound a month. We can't do this without you.
0: We talked about this on on Monday. We are really excited about this fundraiser. We're really keen um, to get more regular supporters. We're currently um, on 6,000. We want to get up to 10,000. With the following we've got, we'd really love to convert more people into supporters so we can continue to grow. You'll notice. Our our usual ask up to now has been for one hour's wage a month for two reasons. We've sort of changed that now. We're saying anything you can possibly afford, one pound, three pound, five pound, or of course, one hour's wage a month if you can. Two reasons for that is one, we really want to focus on converting more people into supporters. And two, obviously, we're well aware that we're living in a cost of living crisis. and, And now is not the time to be demanding significant chunks of money from people. So whatever you feel that you can afford, please do go to our website and sign up. And also, I'm, you know, I'm pleased to be showing you that fundraiser while I've got Moya on the show, because we have, you know, if you followed us on Twitter, you'll notice we've done lots of hires recently, Navarra Media, massively expanding, delighted to be getting so much new talent on. I'm going to put you on the spot, Moya. Why should people donate from your free weeks you've had with us?
1: (laughs) People should donate because I think we're a truly pluralist media organization. I wouldn't have joined otherwise. And we're independent completely. We rely on the donations of regular supporters. And when you become a supporter, you become part of that pluralist project. So we want to hear your views. We want to hear your input. You're part of the Novara Media community. And there'll be lots of exciting things, I think, in the future for supporters to get involved with. But yeah, basically, we need your support because we don't have billionaires behind us.
0: I like your focus on, on pluralism. So I wouldn't have joined Navara Media if I had to agree with everything that idiot hosting Tisky Sauer said. I see where we're going with that. Um, of course, that link to support us is Noiromedia.com support. Let's go straight to our next story. A Tory MP has been arrested on suspicion of rape. The accusations levelled against the MP span a period of seven years from 2002 to 2009. The man is in his 50s and has been released on bail. He was also held on suspicion of indecent assault, abuse of a position of trust, and misconduct in public office. And while the MP has not yet been suspended from the Conservative Party, he has been advised to stay away from Parliament while police investigate. And while there has been speculation on social media as to who the arrested MP is, will refrain from commenting on their identity due to legal reasons. In any case, whoever this person is, the arrest marks the latest in a series of allegations and. Convictions Concerning Sex Offences by Tory MPs. This is the long list of Tory MPs known to have been accused of sexual misconduct, including more than one convicted of sexual assault. In April, Tory MP Imrad Ahmad Khan was found guilty of molesting a child. The former MP for Wakefield had sat on a panel advising the government on child grooming while under police caution for the offence. Khan was expelled from the party following his conviction, triggering a by-election in his seat due to be held on the 23rd of June. Even more recently, Chair of the Environment Committee Neil Parrish resigned after admitting to watching porn on his phone in the Commons Chamber. He claimed that he'd viewed it by accident while researching tractors. Parrish's resignation triggered another by-election, this time in Tiverton and Honiton, which will also be held on the 23rd of June. Another Tory, David Warburton MP, was also suspended in April after a photo emerged showing him alongside several lines of cocaine. The picture was taken in the home of a younger woman who claimed that Warburton assaulted her after taking off his clothes and getting into bed with her. That was according to her account, despite telling him she had no interest in doing anything sexual with him. And last year, Tory MP Rob Roberts was suspended from Parliament and the party after sexually harassing a staff member. The staff member, who has now left, said that Roberts repeatedly propositioned him, leaving him shocked and horrified. Roberts returned to Parliament after just six weeks, and the Tory party readmitted him shortly afterwards, though he now sits as an independent. Also last year, a judge found that Andrew Griffiths, a former Tory minister and one time chief of staff to Theresa May, had repeatedly raped and assaulted his wife, fellow Tory MP, Kate Griffiths. In 2018, before these crimes came to light, he was suspended from the party following allegations that he had sent 2000 lewd comments to a 28 year old barmaid and her friend on social media over a three week period. Nonetheless, May restored the whip to him in December 2018 to stack the deck in her favor during a no-confidence vote. Another Tory MP suspended and then reinstated to save Theresa May's skin was Charlie Elphick. He was jailed in 2020 after being found guilty of sexually assaulting two women. But he originally had the whip withdrawn in 2017 after two members of staff accused him of sexual offenses. In his trial, the jury was told that he had chased one woman around his house singing, quote, I'm a naughty Tory, I'm a naughty Tory. His ex-wife, NP Natalie Elphick, signed a statement accusing his victim of lying. She remains a member of the party. Going further back, though only to 2017, Defence Secretary Michael Fallon resigned after he was accused of sexual harassment by several women over many years. They included journalists Julia Hartley Brewer and Jane Merrick. Also that year, Damien Green, First Secretary of State and Minister for the Cabinet Office in Theresa May's government, resigned. This was after he was found to have lied about pornography found on his Westminster computer, as well as allegations made he had harassed a young conservative activist. Finally, Tory MP Mark Garnier was accused of sexually harassing his secretary also in 2017. Garnier at the time was international trade minister and was ultimately cleared by the cabinet office of breaking the ministerial code. But he did accept a number of the claims made by his former staff member, including that he asked her to buy two vibrators at a Soho sex shop and called her sugar tits. It's hard not to see this absolute shower of sleaze as indicating a serious and systemic problem in the Tory party. And the apparent problem isn't just limited to conservatives. According to Politico, there are currently fifty-six MPs subject to sexual misconduct complaints. That includes three ministers from the cabinet and two ministers from the shadow cabinet. Moya, that was a very sort of unpleasant list of Tories and either things they have been found guilty of or have been you know, subject to to allegations of. What should we make of the fact that so many MPs seem to be subject to these kind of complaints?
1: I just want to make the point that this is something that is an issue across both sides of the House of Commons. This is not limited to Tory MPs. You know, Mike Hill recently was a really egregious one, but I see this part of a bigger pattern of systemic abuse of power. And within that, you have such misconduct, you have bullying, you have corruption. It's all part of, I would say, the degradation of political office. So we have MPs currently who believe that they can do things with impunity. And more often than not, they're proven correct. So they step up what they can do. And this often is expressed in the form of sexual misconduct because of the way power dynamics play out in these spaces. So, for example, you might have somebody within the House of Parliament who is a woman. She has more power than your average person on the street, say, you know, Claudia Webb, for example. And then she is found to have abused that power. But more often than not, if you have equipped men of a certain background, of a certain standing with power, they will then be able to wield it in an even more destructive way, such as sexual harassment, misconduct against people, including their colleagues. Nadia Whitton recently wrote a piece about the sexual harassment that she's experienced within Westminster. But as I said, this is part of this wider system where MPs are not held accountable. And because of that, over decades, they have, once they get into that place, power is... Corrupting them, I think, frankly, and there are the, the systems that are meant to hold them to account, the systems that are meant to make sure that behaviour doesn't occur, are not working. And we have to ask why they are not working, and why they have these have not been implemented properly, and who is benefiting from that? The answer is very obvious, but these questions are just not being asked. All these things are being treated as sort of why is there so much sexual misconduct in Westminster, rather than being seen as part of this wider landscape of abuse of power. And until we look at it as, as this like larger problem, I don't think anything will be comprehensively solved.
0: There's two sort of really worrying issues about this. What's actually going on in and around parliament or what's alleged to be going on in and around parliament. As you're talking about what this represents about how power can be abused in in British workplaces. But then also that these are people making the laws of the land. So it kind of matters what their attitudes are to issues such as sexual abuse in the workplace because they are the people who should be legislating to to stop it. And someone along with all of the evidence we just presented you. Someone who, who really doesn't seem to be taking this seriously at all is a Tory MP, Michael Fabrican, after news of the MP's arrest on suspicion of rape emerged. He posted this on social media. I am expecting a strong turnout of Conservative MPs at Prime Minister's questions today, not only to demonstrate their strong support for hashtag Boris, in brackets, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, but also to prove they are not the one told by the Chief Whip to stay at home. I'll be there. And then, I don't know how to describe that emoji, sort of tongue out, doing a wink. So very much making light of the fact that a Tory MP has been told not to come into Parliament because they have been arrested on suspicion of rape. And he is making light of that. Oh, we'll all have to come into Parliament then, so you don't think we're the one arrested on suspicion of rape. Moyer, I want to get you to talk sort of specifically about that element, about the fact that these people are, are legislators, they are making the laws of this land. And from the fact that this seems to be a systematic problem in Parliament and responses like that. It doesn't seem like these are the right people to be legislating on issues as important as this.
1: Yes, but you could also say that for many of the issues they have to legislate on, I don't think many of the politicians we have in the modern day are fit for government or office, personally. And I think that that, again, speaks to the fact that politics is seen as this dirty, grubby space in part because of behavior like this. It's almost a it's this sort of catch-22. You have this corruption, this abuse, this behavior, people very blatantly misusing their powers and not being fit for office. And then you get people who think, well, I'm not going to get involved in politics. It's not for me. These all politicians are corrupt. They are grubby. I don't want to be part of that. And there's political disengagement as a result of that. There's lots of studies out there that show the more apathetic and disengaged people become, the less likely they are to be galvanised and involved in the political sphere. And that means anything from voting to running for office themselves in local communities. It doesn't help when we have quite obviously unfair selection processes to decide who even gets the chance to run for being an MP in the first place. Those channels of getting ordinary people who really do represent their communities into the halls of power where they can make laws because they want to best represent the people who they have come from, those channels are blocked, I think, probably as badly as they may have been (laughs) when they first were developed. And these, these all play into this, as I said, wider system of Who wants to be a politician in the first place? It's like policing, for example, the exams that you have to sit to the sort of like entrance application forms that you have to do in order to apply to be a police officer are designed to weed out people who might not take to exercising power in a way that many of us would describe as authoritarian. And people have spoken to that. They've testified to that and, and being found not fit for purpose because of perhaps views that might be seen as more compassionate or more left wing or liberal by you know the general public and this is all part of the selection processes it's all part of who gets to be there who wants to be there in the first place and all this adds up to the fact that we get people like Michael Fabricant who is essentially a comedy character wearing wheat on his head who somehow seems to be in the news every single day speaking on behalf of the government and that's perhaps because the government are now getting the spokespeople they deserve rather than the ones they want and while it's funny in some ways to look at this ridiculous figure and think how on earth did you get there it's also a damning indictment of where we're at with the people who represent us
0: Um, let's go straight on to our next story despite fossil fuel companies making billions in profits the tories have so far resisted instituting a windfall tax on energy firms but the policy which was first promoted by labor is popular with voters and as energy prices continue to surge it's getting ever more urgent It's all a context in which Ed Miliband can smell a U-turn.
2: Amidst the chaos and confusion about what their position is, I think a massive U-turn is lumbering slowly over the hill. But I say this to the Chancellor. Swallow your pride and get on with it. Because every day he delays is another day when the British people are denied the help they need. Millions of families having sleepless nights because the Chancellor won't act. What is he waiting for? He should come to the House, as proposed by my right honourable friend, the Shadow Chancellor, with an emergency budget for a windfall tax, getting rid of VAT on energy bills, an increase in the warm-homes discount to £400, an emergency plan to insulate 2 million homes this year, and a cut in business rates. And their position, their position on the windfall tax, Madam Deputy Speaker, It's part of a... I won't for a moment. And their position on the windfall tax is part of a wider problem with this Chancellor and this government. Just look at the political choices he is making. He leaves non-doms shielding their millions while millions of families and pensioners face a cut in their incomes. He whacks up taxes on tenants and lets landlords off the hook. He makes young people at work pay more, but those getting money from capital gains pay not a penny extra. Wrong, unfair, unjust, out of touch. That's who
0: he is. That was a very good summary of Tory priorities. Lots of reference to the fact that national insurance rises only affect those who make their incomes from work. Of course, if Sunak had instead increased income tax, that would have hit landlords as well as workers, but he didn't. And in fact, he wants to cut it. I wonder why. We'll show you some more of that speech now. Miliband goes on to attack the Tories for always blaming others for their own mistakes.
2: Being this government, they always try and blame Someone else. We heard it earlier on. In just the last few days alone, and in just the last few days alone, Madam Deputy Speaker, here is the roll call of people the party opposite are trying to frame. I have to say it's hard to keep track. The Bank of England, civil servants working from home. Shamefully, the British people being unable to cook properly. Apparently the cause of food banks. Yesterday, a uh, ludicrous suggestion for one of these ministers, people not working enough hours. <laughs> yeah. And the Chancellor, and the Chancellor of all people, is at it too. Who does he blame for the massive cut to benefits? Yeah. He blames the IT system. Uh. <laughs> the dude from Silicon Valley. Ma- Madam Deputy Speaker, who is he trying to kid? If he had got his act together early enough, of course he could have raised benefits properly. Absolutely. In- indeed. The thing I don't get is this, he found it perfectly possible to cut universal credit by £20 in the middle of the year in September. Madam Deputy Speaker, it's not a case of computer says no, it's a case of Chancellor says no. It's not the case of a computer system not being up to it, it's the Chancellor not being up to it. Mr Speaker, the story of the last few months, crypto has crashed and so has the Chancellor. And how similar they are, the chancellor and cryptocurrency, came out of nowhere. The value surged, looked like the future, but it's all turned out to be one
0: giant Ponzi scheme. So lots of those terrible excuses that he ran through, we've shown you on on recent episodes of Tisky Sour. One of the most recent was the reference to Rishi Sunak there, where he said, oh, the reason we can't raise benefits in line with inflation is because our computer system can't handle doing it more than once a year. And then he's making that pun about him being a Silicon Valley dude because Rishi Sunak seems to always want to spend time in California instead of in Westminster. I, I think he's probably given up on, on, on getting promoted in Westminster, so he's given up on politics. Moya, what did you make of those interventions from a very fiery Ed Miliband?
1: I am impressed that despite the economic shortage, someone managed to find 50p and stick it in Ed Miliband. That was, he was animated. Uh, um, uh, I, I was actually really impressed, especially with the crypto uh, little, little dig there, which was right on, the metaphor was correct. Let's just put it that way. And well in keeping with the one that he'd done as a through line. But he's right. Essentially what he's saying about Rishi Sunak is that He's not up to the task and he's not because Rishi Sunak is one of the most dangerous people of all in that he is a committed ideologue when it comes to Thatcherism, you know, and he is determined to prove that his view of the economic model he thinks the country should be following, which is the one pioneered by Thatcher back in the 70s, will work. And all we have to do is just stick with it. Well, you know, I'm not an economist, but I'm telling you it's not going to work. It's not working right now. And by the time it becomes apparent that Rishi Sunak's position is completely untenable because of the misery he has wrought on the country, then there will be thousands or millions who have been pushed further into poverty, and it will take them absolutely years and years and years to get out of that if they can. If Rishi Sunak is left in his position, we're going to be subject to a lot more hardship before we see any signs of it getting better. And meanwhile he's pushing this idea of, you know, he's telling businesses that he's going to cut rates to in order to make them invest in training more, hiring more. Well, we've got the tightest labour market we've seen in ages. So I don't really know how that works. It's classic sort of like, you know, paternalistic economics. And it hasn't worked. But again, he's still trying it. And that's what's dangerous about Rishi Sunak.
0: And that's the thing, you know, like, one, it's, it's ridiculous to, to say, oh, we'll cut their corporation tax, so they invest more. Like, We've seen them make that argument about BP and Shell. BP and Shell have said, actually, their investment plans wouldn't change if there was a windfall tax. But maybe, I mean, they didn't exactly say this, but you can see this from what they have chosen to do with their supernormal profits, is they have bought back shares, which just increases the value of the company for shareholders, and they've given out bigger dividends. So you cut the taxes of corporations, that goes to shareholders, right? It it doesn't have anything to do with training, has very, very little to do with investment. What that will do is just trickle up to the super rich. What people need is a pay rise, right? So so we don't need people pretending that a company who makes enormous profits that they don't need or they don't deserve is going to decide, oh, we've got so much money to spare. Let's train the workers. That's not how it works. But obviously Rishi Sunak is, is willing to pretend that's how it works because as you explained very articulately, Moya, he is a committed thatcher right? and a very dangerous one as well. Thank God he turned out to be a Ponzi scheme, and people have realized before he got that top job. Final story. There weren't many positive consequences of the pandemic, but one unambiguous plus was the increasing prevalence of working from home. Less time commuting, less time spent on stale sandwiches, and more control of one's time has made some degree of home working popular across Britain. But as with all good things in life, the Daily Mail wants it gone. They've been pursuing an obsessive campaign against home working. On Monday, they wrote... British workers lead the world in, capital letters, refusing to return to the office. UK tops table of nations with most staff clinging to post-pandemic working-from-home lifestyle with women at the vanguard of Flexidus. Goddamn women working from home. Why wouldn't they possibly want to go into these workplaces like the House of Commons, where one in eight MPs are accused of sexual harassment? What could possibly explain that? In that same edition... Um, this article appeared. Working from home is woeful for your health. A fifth of those working from home exercise less, a third are eating more, and the toll could take years to tackle, says BP. I mean, if a fifth of those working from home are exercising less, how many of those are exercising more? And if a, a third of them are eating more, how many of them are eating less? This doesn't strike me as a particularly scientific headline, and I I do not believe that the Daily Mail have our interests at heart when they are trying to get us back into the workplace. It got to a new level of ridiculous this Wednesday. This was the front page. The charge being made is that the Bank of England's inability to control inflation is because too many of its staff work from home. It's a tenuous claim, to say the least, and the article never even bothers to try to explain why Bank of England staff working from home is making the organisation less effective. The article does, however, report on local hospitality. So they say the head of a restaurant close to the bank said officials used to book a table for about 40 people once or twice a week pre-COVID. Now maybe it's once or twice a month, said the boss speaking anonymously. Melissa Manu, a barista at a Costa coffee shop near the bank, said custom was about 50 to 75% of pre-COVID levels and the shop had cut staff from six to four. So the headline saying, the reason we got such high inflation is because the Bank of England workers, they're working from home. The only evidence they give us is that people are going to the restaurants near the Bank of England. less. There's, there's, There's no causal relation between those two things. But the Daily Mail can make up for their poor argumentation by drawing on powerful allies. Last weekend, the Mail on Sunday were granted an interview with Boris Johnson and surprise, surprise, they led with this. Working from home doesn't work, says Prime Minister in mail interview. Boris Johnson demands millions get back to the office. Johnson is quoted as saying, My experience of working from home is you spend an awful lot of time making another cup of coffee and then, you know, getting up, walking very slowly to the fridge, hacking off a small piece of cheese, then walking very slowly back to your laptop and then forgetting what it was you're doing. I believe in the workplace environment and I think that will help to drive up productivity. It will get our city centers moving in the weekdays and it will be good for mass transit. And a lot of businesses that have been having a tough time will benefit from that. A slightly worrying comment, given that Boris Johnson's office is in the same building as his home. Also, we do know that he spent quite a while drinking wine and cheese when he probably should have been working on things which are more important. But nevertheless, I, I will take him at his word. Potentially when he's in his flat, he is less efficient than when he's in the office downstairs and he has never seemed to be a man with much self-control. But those comments he made there, it's, it's not what actual research suggests about the rest of us. A recent study by the women's workplace charity Catalyst found this. Overall, compared to those without remote work access, access to remote work increases employee well-being, productivity, innovation, and inclusion. It increases innovation by 63%, work engagement by 75%, organizational commitment by 68%, And 93% of employees are more likely to report feeling included. That's not to mention that as the cost of living crisis continues to bite, saving money on commuting and eating out can be a serious benefit. So what's the background to this obsessive campaign from the PM and the mail? Is this a bugbear of Boris Johnson and the mail are backing him up? Is it just a coincidence they're both raging at home workers? Or does the causal chain go the other way around? A tweet from Dominic Cummings gives us an idea. He says, you can only understand the working from home fast if you understand this is an issue. The trolley, that's his word, Boris Johnson, gets direct repeated calls from newspaper proprietors, that's owners, not just editors. It's killing us. Tell us what you want in return, but you must get commuters back since April 2020. So as ever, the tweet needs a little translation. Dominic Cummings has a way with words. But what he's saying is that newspaper owners are desperate to get people back into offices for financial reasons so they can sell more papers. That means they're pressuring the government to toe their line, which is getting people back in to workplace journalism. In short, this isn't client journalism, it's client politics. Instead of journalists doing the bidding of politicians, it's politicians doing the bidding of journalists. Can I get from you your take on this? We've heard from Dominic Cummings a few times how Boris Johnson mainly just wants to answer to newspaper companies. The evidence keeps on coming.
1: Well, yes. I mean, if you look at the data, then newspapers that rely on the sort of commuters like the Metro and the Day Mail, DMGT, who own them both, have had this disastrous slide in revenue, which I think we were citing. Uh, it's, you know, from the From 2019, revenue has gone down from 79 million to 26 million last year, which maybe clues us in a little bit to why the Daily Mail might be against this (laughs) or why the editorship of the Daily Mail may not be in favor of working from home. I also think it's just part of the cultural. It's another subject where they can say, Oh, you know, these, 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 these liberal people want to work from home and slack off and eat cheese instead of focusing perhaps on the very real disintegration of the government in front of them. And, you know, the cost of living crisis that is maybe meaning that people won't be able to afford the cheese that they're talking about while working from home. So, I mean, most of what the Daily Mail talks about is absolute nonsense. What's interesting about the Daily Mail is, as well as its circulation dropping, it's in line with other sort of print papers anyway so i think in sam friedman's most recent newsletter which is called communist freed and i i tend to read because i find it quite interesting analysis then he pointed out that the combined circulation daily circulation of the daily mail the express the telegraph and i think the sun was now below 2.5 million which is a real drop in influence right and even though the Telegraph and The Times both say that their digital subscriber base is around 400,000 the Guardian claimed their digital subscriber base is around 900,000 the most popular news source in the UK is still the BBC and I think it was something like 2. Point something billion people accessed the BBC in February 2021 so when we talk about the sort of influence these these papers have, I do think sometimes it's not as much as we might believe. They just pretend to reflect the sort of establishment view- views we're seeing. But often there's a conversation simply going on between, say, Boris Johnson and the Telegraph, going back and forth, going back and forth. And the problem is that these papers, these media bases have outsized influence on the people making these decisions, making this legislation. But th- there's been a sea change in working from home culture, and I don't see it reversing anytime soon unless Boris does something really unpopular and wild, like bringing legislation to make people go back to the office. which I. I feel confident saying it's not going to happen, despite much of the draconian legislation they've brought in elsewhere. So, essentially, what I'm saying is the, the Daily Mail are once again just trying to fill column inches, <laughs> and because no one's reading the paper,
0: filling column inches, but in in a very you know super direct way, right? We we have got some research, and which is sort of backing up Cummings' views. DMGT is the group that owns the Daily Mail as well as the Metro, um, and as to their recent fortunes, so as to the Metro's recent fortunes. The Press Gazette reports Metro has seen a disastrous slide in revenue due to the pandemic from 79 million pounds in 2019 to 26 million pounds last year and was said to have made a substantial loss in the year. So DMGT, that's the owner, said the business has been severely affected by lower commuter volumes and the weak print advertising market. So Metro Daily Mail owned by the same people. Metro losing shed loads of money because people aren't taking the tube anymore. Obviously, they get their money from advertisers who, who want commuters to look at those pages, commuters aren't looking at those pages. They call up Boris Johnson, please can you join our campaign to make sure that everyone comes into work? And obviously they can't be honest about the real reason. So they have to make up all these bogus reasons about, oh, if you don't go into the workplace, this is going to make it difficult for younger workers. If you don't go into the workplace, it's going to make your organizations very unproductive. All the research shows the opposite. I mean, I have to say I'm in favor of hybrid working. I wouldn't want to always work from home, but I like, you know, half working from home, half working in the office, what most people um, at Navara media do. And I think you know, revealed preference, which is, you know, people acting on their desires suggests that that's what most people like to do. And the conservatives have have made it. As you say, I think that they are making it a, a culture war issue, as well as one which has the financial interest of their pals in the press at heart and their pals in the landlord sector, by the way, because it is people who own office buildings in the middle of big cities that are also pretty annoyed at people not going into the office. And probably one of the reasons why they're not so worried about putting forward sort of a policy to get people back into their workplaces is because most of their voters are pensioners anyway. The, the Tories' re-election campaign has nothing to do with workers. It has nothing to do with wages. It, all it has to do is with house prices and pensioners in key constituencies, essentially. Obviously, this is not, you know, I don't want class war against pensioners. I'm just saying there is a reason that the Conservatives seem to, to disregard so greatly the desires of, of, of people who... Who have jobs. Because this is also it's quite a cross-class thing. It's not just people at the bottom of the income spectrum being affected by this. People across the income spectrum are are enjoying hybrid working. Moya, finally, from you, are they going to succeed? Are they going to manage to bully people back into the the workplace? Obviously, Jacob Rees Mogg in the civil service is doing these weird passive aggressive notes. He can't leave passive aggressive notes on every workplace in the country. How are they going to make this happen?
1: No, I think frankly, they won't be able to, because I think The people who benefit the most from working from home are the people with, sadly, the most power. And like, you know, we talked about it the the jobs that have proved you don't have to be in the workplace to do them. I wouldn't call them, go as far as call them non-essential jobs because they're not, but it's classic like office jobs where you can do it from home rather than having to be on a construction site or et cetera. And those are the people who tend to have more power or the ear of the conservatives. If you're an executive at Barclays who enjoys working from home. And you call up your friend Boris and say, "Look, call it, call it on the, uh, call it on the end of work from home stuff." I think you're more likely to be listened to than somebody who doesn't have that kind of influence or social status. So I think they won't end. And also, it's because we've reached critical mass of people maybe working from home, and people don't like things being taken away—the rare nice things that you can have in this country if it suits your job, obviously. Sadly, not everyone can do it. It doesn't suit everybody we talked about. What we really should be aiming for is like a hybrid, flexible working that's tailored to different people's needs. The same way I feel about Unlimited Holiday, which has come up recently because Goldman Sachs have been offering it to only senior staff and not junior staff, or for example, the four-day working week. None of these things should be blanket imposed or taken away. We should be trying to find the best way of working for workers in this country. But yet the government and the people who pretend to be also on the side of workers in in Parliament, like the Labour Party, don't really seem to be looking out for that at all. Once again, it's always representing business interests as opposed to the people making that business profitable in the first place.
0: An important note to end tonight's show on. Moya, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Many more of these to come, I hope.
1: I'd just like to say, diop, Michael. (laughs) Which means thank you in Welsh.
0: (laughs) Oh my god! Shit, I I shouldn't have said. I mean, I probably didn't even pronounce it right.
1: As someone from the Welsh border, I just had to represent on behalf. of
0: Okay, I've learned something today. That's important. Apologies to any Welsh speakers watching who feel like I should have known that already. Um, I'll do a basic course. We will wrap up there. We'll be back on Friday at seven pm. Just to reiterate our point about the fundraiser, we're really, really keen to get up to ten thousand regular supporters. You know, if you're sitting on the fence, can I be bothered to go on the website and sign up? Just please do it. We really want to get there, and we have lots of big plans if we do manage to hit that target. For now, though, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.